following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. truisms that exist in life, especially for us as guys. And we theologians, we, we make up words for those kinds of things. When we see consistency that is taught in Scripture and consistency in life and realize that the two are the same thing, we come up with really fancy names for it. And usually it's a certain kind of theology. So this particular theology that Eric was talking about, theologians refer to that with regard to men who are kind of slow to, to learn and men who've learned lessons, but they forget them. We call it knucklehead theology. So since we're all knuckleheads and we kind of overlook those kinds of things and we have to be reminded of those things again and again and we see our, ourselves failing and overlooking something and it gets right into our face, we just say, yep, yeah, I'm a knucklehead. And so that knucklehead theology is something for all of us to remember and it keeps us in that position of humility. Well, most of us have probably done enough traveling around this country to realize all the different kinds of uh, places with uh, the, the flora and fauna changing depending on elevation and location and placement within the United States. And for many of us who've traveled in the, middle, uh, the Midwest, we've seen those long rolling hills in, uh, in the mid-states. Mid the country is just flat, and there's nothing but grasslands. And it seems like it goes on for days and days and days as we try to drive through it to get to our destination. Well, the people who live there have the challenges with regard to all that grass because during the summer when it gets really dry and there's not enough water and the grass is there and it's dying and they have a lightning strike, they have all these grass fires that pop up. Well, one of those grass fires popped up and a number of the people who saw the smoke uh, ran out there and called the fire department and they sent out from one of the small little villages and towns uh, one of the newest and the best of the pumpers that could has ever been made and that, that that group of firefighters went out there and they were fighting this grass fire but the wind was kicking up and the grass was so long and it had already gotten such a good start that they realized that they were far out maps and they couldn't do this on their own so they sent out a second alarm to the ne- neighboring town and they sent out their fire truck which was almost as good as that first one. So these two fire engines were out there with their fighting firefighting groups trying to put out this fire. And they soon realized, the two captains from the different fire engines realized that this was still beyond their capacity, so they sent out a third alarm to the next nearest town. And they, they finally got there with their fire engine and their team, and they were fighting alongside the other two, and the wind had whipped this thing up, and the fire was quite intense, so there's no way they were going to accomplish it. So the captains got together and said, we've got to put out a fourth alarm, but there's no one left. So one of the captains said, well, there is. There's a volunteer fire department in such and such a town. And the guys started laughing and said, they, they won't even make it here in time with the rickety old rig they've got. So no, well, we've got to help. And every little bit helps. So they sent out a fourth alarm into this volunteer fire department, which were really just a bunch of retired guys that didn't know what else to do. And they, they thought they put in their time and... They, they finally jumped onto the truck and got the thing fired up and started heading out to where this grass fire was, and they were at full speed ahead and going down this road, and they saw the smoke. They saw the other engines. One of the captains jumped down on the road and was trying to direct these guys 
to where they can go and be safe and still at the same time offer them some assistance. But the fire truck was not going to turn. It wasn't even slowing down. And by the by the time the the captain, who's trying to give directions, realized his truck wasn't stopping, he, he jumped out of the way just in time so that the truck wouldn't run him over. And he couldn't believe this. Truck just passed the other engines, drove right into the fire. And it stopped on the other side of the fire line. And all these all these retired guys jumped off this truck with shovels and, and uh, hoses. And they're fighting this thing for all they're worth. And lo and behold... What they did, that little extra oomph, was all that they needed to get that fire under control. Well, the story of this heroic group of retired guys uh, became just viral, and just everyone in the state were so excited, and they patted on the local news, and the governor heard about it, so he came out, and he wanted to award these guys with a, not only a, a medal of valor, but also a great large check from the state funds in order to encourage them with their firefighting skills. So right there in front of Statewide television, the governor was lauding the courage of these volunteer firefighters who were all standing behind him, look a little bit sheepish. And the governor finally says, I want to award you guys because of your valor, these medals of valor, which were hung around their necks by one of his assistants. And he says, I want to present you this very large check or a very large sum of money from the state coffers to encourage you to keep on doing what you're doing. So we called him up to the microphone in front of state television. The governor says, and boy, we would really enjoy having a word from you guys. So the captain of the volunteer fire department got up there and kind of him and hawed and says, well, thanks a lot. We really appreciate this. This is is really unexpected, but we we are grateful for this wonderful award and this amazing check. And the governor says, well, what are you going to do with all that money now that you've got this? And the guy says, well, quite honest, Mr. Governor, first thing we're going to do is we're going to fix the brakes on that old truck of ours. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know whether or not you're the kind of person that when the obvious is there, that you're going to respond properly to what is obvious. Now, again, when we talk about knucklehead theology, sometimes we guys aren't very good at when something is presented to us, it's so obvious. Sometimes we kind of dismiss it. Sometimes we overlook it. Sometimes we're so preoccupied with the things that really interest us, we just keep on going on our merry way and don't realize that something has been presented to us that's remarkably special. And the amazing thing is that we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture today that actually deals with that whole deal. And if I could think of anything that talks about knucklehead theology better than this, this this passage of Scripture is going to deal with it. We've got a bunch of guys, a bunch of men who are very proud of their position and status in a community, and they're very proud of the fact that they're one of the most intelligent groups of people in the community. So they not only hold position, but they also hold credentials. But then in the practice of typical knucklehead theology, they overlooked, they missed the greatest presentation of truth, and they overlooked it because they were so preoccupied with their own personal biases. And that's what this uh, passage of Scripture is all about, called the trans, uh, not the transfiguration, but the, uh, this, this passage of Scripture with regard to the, um, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. So the context of this passage is a transfiguration, but the actual event itself is what we call Palm Sunday, or the time when Jesus Christ is presented to the nation of Israel as the King of Kings. And one of the most amazing things you can see here up on the, on the board that this particular event, in the context of the Transfiguration, we now have this official presentation of Jesus as Messiah. 
in uh, chapter 11, and it's uh, this, this amazing presentation of Jesus Christ coming in. And a couple of things that we do know is that when Jesus Christ is presenting the kingdom, or presenting himself as the Messiah for the nation of Israel to put their faith in him, some people mess this up from the theological position. They say, well, really, the baptism of Christ, that was really the important feature that began the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And I would never, ever say that that wasn't. It's a very important part of the life of Jesus Christ, but that was really identifying who Jesus was. was not the presentation of him as king. That was part of the credentialing process to convince the religious leadership that he was, in fact, the Messiah. At this particular time of the, the temptation, some people will say, when Christ demonstrated his power over Satan and all those temptations, that's when Jesus Christ demonstrated his Messiahship. Well, it really was not really demonstrating the fact that he was authentic as far as the presentation of who he was. Christ was trying to give all of those people who are watching him the clarity of his identification and the, the genuineness of the presentation, the fact that he was the king. So even though a lot of these things seem theological and maybe a little bit confusing, but this is the way you sort it all out. And in this official presentation on Palm Sunday, when Jesus Christ does this triumphal entry. Some people will say, well, it really was a transfiguration. The context of all this, that the kingdom was presented, well, no, because the transfiguration was to a very limited audience, and the specific purpose was for the disciples, not the religious leadership of the nation of Israel. They were the ones who were going to determine the future of Israel by either accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ as Messiah. So we look at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ coming in on this cult, and the palms being waved, and the people shouting Hosanna, and we say that this really is the official presentation of Jesus as Messiah. So up until this point, he's performing miracles to show that he had the power of what Messiah would do, and Jesus Christ was teaching very important spiritual lessons so that his words would convince the people of who he was. And that's one of the most amazing lessons about Christianity. It doesn't try to cram down truth in the lives of anyone. He presents it. And allows people to make a decision about where they will place their faith. And it's up to them. They are given the evidence, and now their responsibility falls on their shoulders. One of the greatest things that God gives the privilege of all of us men is that after this is all done, we're going to go to work and spend time with some of our colleagues. And we become the visual, audible representation of who Jesus Christ can be to the lives of the people who are at work. They can watch us. They can watch how we react under pressure in stressful situations. And by God's grace, they will see something, someone different than everybody else who's around them. And when someone else in the workforce is under stress and under pressure and is disappointed or extremely in difficult situations, they will say things and utter words that should never pass from ours. That becomes common. But all of a sudden, when we're under pressure and under difficulty, they hear us say different things that are surprising, that are under control, that have come way beyond the power of our ability as human beings, but by the power of the Spirit. So co-workers are watching and they're listening when we behave differently in front of them. And there will come a time in their life when they'll have great trauma in their life. Who are they going to turn to for help when life is overwhelming to them? It will be the some person, that one person that they saw that was different, that they sounded different. They may have something in life that they've been wanting, especially now when they're under tremendous pressure themselves. 
It's exactly what's happening here at the presentation of Jesus Christ. He's already done all the talking. He's already done all the miracles to convince people. Now it's time for them to decide. The presentation of Jesus Christ at the triumphal entry is an opportunity for people to put their faith or reject Jesus Christ, claiming to be Messiah. Can you imagine what it's like? Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to see David Copperfield lie, but Yvonne and I did. We went to Las Vegas for the one and only time in our lives to go see some shows. And top of our list, we wanted to see a David Copperfield live uh, presentation of his of his uh, magic show, of, of uh, all, all of the things that he does. And it was stunning. I mean, the crowd was all there. I, I thought to myself as the crowd was pouring in 30 minutes before the show, filling up every single seat. I was thinking, I don't think I remember the last time this happened in church. People show up 30 minutes in advance and all the seats are taken with people eager to see what was going to go on. And by the time the show started, it started right on the button. The lights went out, the music went on, the spotlights were everywhere, and all of a sudden this big shadow box appears on the stage as these girls push it out on the stage and there's nothing underneath it because it's raised above the ground. They, they spin it around. There's nothing as far as getting anything in there. They open up the doors. It's completely empty. And the music changes and lights go on and the spotlights go there. And all of a sudden the shadow appears in the shadow box and it's the head of David Copperfield and on the show's entire body. And, and besides just him being inside that shadow box, when the silhouette demonstrates itself, you hear this loud roar of a Harley. And then in that shadow box, it's not just his silhouette, but the silhouette of this very large motorcycle. And he sits on the motorcycle, revs up the engine, all the exhaust is coming out. And at the climax, part of the music, they fling the doors open and there's David Copperfield. In this shadow box where there's no entry, top, above, behind, or underneath. And he's sitting there on this motorcycle. How in the world did he get it in there when we're all watching the stage? And of course, what does the crowd do? They yawn and say, yeah, anything else? Yeah, that's okay. That's not bad. Man, we were on our feet applauding and screaming and hollering. He makes a presentation. And in an overwhelming sense that we as an audience had, we applauded because of that phenomenon. How in the world did he get in there? How in the world did he get this motorcycle in there? We're watching this from, the, from right there, in, in, right in front of us. And the presentation was so overwhelming, we responded appropriately. And David Copperfield, in his show, he doesn't just do big, spectacular things. He does some really small things. He took two rubber bands, sat there at the edge of the stage as the cameras zoomed in. And he tangled up these rubber bands, and all of a sudden he says, you guys ready to see this? And he moved them around a little bit, and he pulled them apart. And it was stunning to watch rubber bands that were all tangled up. He just moved them apart. And he did it again, said, just in case you missed it, I'm going to do it again. And he mixed it all up, and we tried to figure everything out, and he just pulled them apart. It was amazing. So whatever illusion trick he has, he does it very well. But he gets on stage and then he does something really amazing, cuts himself in half with his big circular saw. And there's no blood going anywhere and there's no clothes being ripped apart, but there were a lot of women around me who were screaming their ears off. And he's just lying there looking at us, smiling through the whole time. And then he gets up. He's in one piece. How in the world did he do that? Well, I'm not going to try it with my bad back because it already hurts just watching this thing. But can you imagine him performing an illusion like this and having the crowd look like this? There is, from the standpoint of 
supernatural presentation, an opportunity for us to react. And if David Copperfield could do a show and have people absolutely standing on their feet applauding as hard as they can because of that amazing reaction and response to his demonstration. What are we going to do when Jesus Christ presents himself as the King of Kings? Are we going to yawn? Are we going to just shrug our shoulders and walk off to the next great image or illustration or vision or some kind of show that someone else puts on? Or is what Jesus Christ presents, does it capture our attention enough to wow us, to say my life is going to follow the direction of the presentation of this amazing man? Well, during that official presentation, during that triumphal entry, when Jesus Christ presents himself as king, he, he doesn't ride in on a Lamborghini. He doesn't ride in on, a, on an amazing stallion, but he rides in on the colt of a donkey. And the colt of a donkey is not exactly your most dignified ride. And Jesus Christ doesn't do it to look silly, but he does it to fulfill prophecy. So we see in Scripture, in Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. That's the prophecy. So without saying a word at this particular juncture, Jesus Christ demonstrates by his actions that he is coming to Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel, presenting himself as Messiah. That's the offer. That's the presentation. That's the parade. One of the most amazing things about this is that Jesus Christ exercises his amazing control over creation. And most of us cannot do that. Can't even come close to that. I drove down from Dallas yesterday, and we went up for a conference and uh, for a special event on Tuesday and drove back yesterday. It took us five and a half hours to drive from Dallas back home to Katy. And the roads were terrible. The rain was horrendous. There were times we had to slow down because the rain came down so hard. I cannot control that rain to make our ride easier. Just can't. We can be inside. We can protect ourselves from it. But there's nothing I can do to control nature to make my route and journey any easier. But Jesus Christ comes here and he exercises control over creation. It's amazing, isn't it? On a colt that's never been ridden by a human being, Jesus Christ sits on it and the animal is completely comfortable giving Jesus Christ a ride. He has control over creation like nobody else. That's the reason for it. Not to look silly, not to capture attention because of the oddity, but he does this for particularly this reason, to demonstrate his control over creation. And when he tells his disciples, go into town, you're going to find this colt and donkey, bring them to me. If anyone tries to stop you, just tell them the Lord has need of them and they'll let you go. This is a Jewish community. You walk in and take their property. Can, can you imagine going out after this is over with and you're going to try to get to your car and then, there, and, and then Eric's over there and he smiles at you and, he's, and he opens up your door and you can't figure out it's, it was locked. He says, well, what are you doing? My, you say to him, what are you doing in my car? He says, oh, Pastor Greg needs it. You say, hey, no problem. Take off, dude. I mean, that's the oddity of this whole thing. And of course, the disciples are thinking, yeah, right. You want us to go in there and take someone else's personal property and they ask us what we have what we're doing we'll just tell them well the lord has needs of it and then they're going to let us go come on give me a break and that's exactly what happens and jesus christ is demonstrating through this amazing presentation 
his ability to control nature, his ability to know everything, what the minds of the owners of the animals are thinking and what they're going to respond to, and all that the disciples need to say to him in order to accomplish this. And the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, it's amazing. Now, now this, this is not just an, an illusion. What David Copperfield did in Las Vegas, those are all tricks. They're all illusions. He, he works in those things in his workshop, so it makes it look like what we would normally think would happen in real life, but they're really fake. But because he gives us the impression of something, we applaud him. Jesus Christ isn't doing just illusions. He's not doing fake stuff. He's doing real stuff. And so all he's asking us to do is to respond appropriately. Here's a response of Jesus Christ's presentation. The audience knew what was going on. The only time they used the word Hosanna in the scripture was the anticipation of the king coming in order to take over Israel. That's why the people were recognizing who he was. And God just unleashed them. And the Pharisees come along and says, Jesus stopped them from saying Hosanna. Because that's wrong. Because that's the words we use when the king comes. So even the Pharisees understood it, but they just rejected Jesus. So Jesus turns to the Pharisees and said, Hey, look, at I, I could tell them to stop if you want me to. And if they do stop, and I can make them stop, it won't really help because even the stones then will open up and shout because this is the official presentation of the Messiah to the nation of Israel, the fulfillment of all this scripture. And it has to be shouted. It has to be made known. And people need to hear it, especially you. So in this particular situation, the question really is, when God makes a presentation, do we pay attention? And does our faith and belief suddenly change because we realize we believe in the one true God whose word is always genuinely fulfilled? Has there been a moment in your life when you saw something so amazing, you saw God's presence and your life was never the same. There was a great event in uh, our lifetime in Washington, D.C., when a group of people called Promise Keepers asked for the men of God to come and meet them in Washington, D.C. at the mall. I don't know if you were there, but I was there. I was living in Oregon at the time, and I told my two sons, who were just grade school kids, I said, hey, I think I need to take you on a trip. I said, where are we going to go, Dad? I said, Washington, D.C. And they got all excited. Dad, you going to the nation's, nation's capital? I said, yeah. I said, we're going to see some things that are really great, but we're going there for a reason that I think Almighty God wants in our lives. I talked to my wife about it. and says, honey, I know we don't have the money to do this, but I, I really think our boys need to go with me. Today, whatever you think. So we bought the tickets. Three of us flew out to Washington, D.C., we saw a lot of the sights that everyone else sees. And we walked out when we were really exhausted, and we walked out into the mall and sat on one of those benches. And I could not believe when I was sitting there how big this mall was. The expanse from one side to the next, the expanse of one length to the next. I thought, God, I don't know how in the world you're going to bring enough guys to make a difference in this size piece of property. But tomorrow when this stand in the gap occurs... May your name be honored. And the next morning, uh, my sons and I woke up from our little hotel, and we started going to the, to the mall, and we thought, well, don't, don't see anything unusual yet. But when we got to within a, 
a block of the mall, things were really happening. Traffic was diverted. Men were coming from all over the place. It was difficult to get into the mall at that time because of so many men. We walked past the stage and I looked at the guard and I smiled. He nodded and I said, hey, any chance I can bring my boys up onto the stage, take a peek before this program? He said, sure, come on up. I stood on the stage over here in the shadow of the of the of Congress, of the, of the Capitol. I stood in the shadow of that on the stage and I, my boys are so small, I knelt down. I had one arm around one side and the other arm around the other side. And I said, guys, no matter what happens in your life, no matter how tough it might ever be, remember this moment with all these men here because this is something that only God could do. Don't forget, you were here. 1.4 million men who gathered simply to humbly come before the Lord and say, God, we want you to bless our marriages. God, we want you to bless our families. God, we want you to bless our nation. The only three things that happened that entire day. One of the most phenomenal moments that I think, normally I'd only get to read that in history, but I got a chance to be a part of it. That was a long time ago for some guys, and some guys missed it. Some only watched it on um, cable TV. But there's something else that happens almost every single week when my wife and I drive to drive to work. So we come in and we do the HOV lane and we skip all the traffic and we head on this overpass that heads over here to Houston's First. My wife teaches here at First Baptist Academy. And many times we get to see a beautiful sunrise, especially as we go over that overpass. My wife and I never stop marveling. Look at, look at the skyline of the city of Houston. In our prayer, whenever we go over that, we just pray and just ask God, to make a miracle happen in Houston. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it'll feel like. We don't know what part he'll give us in it. But we, we pray for this city. Because when we first drove in here and three years ago, when God moved us to Houston, we just said, God, give us a love for this city. And so when I see this skyline in the mornings when we come to work, I pray for the city of Houston that God could do a supernatural work for the benefit of the people who live here. And it's an amazing testimony to the world because Houston is becoming a global city. It's not just one of the biggest cities in the United States. It's becoming a global impact city. And what God can do here through all of what we do in the lives of people who are around us that we meet, can you imagine us having a part in the eternity of the lives of many people together as a group of guys? Phenomenal to me. So what God does by presentation and what God does by demonstration, how do we react? Whether it was a triumphal entry long ago, whether it was stand in the gap in Washington, D.C., whether it's hear us loving the city of Houston, or for me personally, amazing miracle, it's taking place even while we're here this morning. The campus where DTS Houston is is phenomenal. It's, it's a wonderful campus. And the last seminary that I was with, we would have died in, to have a place like that. Beautiful and, and well done and everything functions and there's lights and there's air conditioning and there's, there's heating. Things that we didn't have. We didn't even have HVAC in several of the classrooms where I was before for seminary education. 
As we look at our campus, we realize that we're outgrowing this thing. There's not enough places to park. It's, it's a good kind of problem. We've run out of office spaces because we've grown our team from 7 to 20, and there's no more offices. Our library has grown three times its size in the last three years, to the point where it can't be contained in its original room and spreads now into another classroom. How can you maintain a, a library like that with a collection that's useful for your students? So God has opened up the door for us to move across the street. We're not just moving one building. We're not just adding a classroom. We're moving an entire campus across the street to a place that's thousands of square feet bigger where we have plenty of offices and plenty of parking spaces. And the central feature of the entire building is going to be a library. But our current library is amazing because it's in a room that has no windows. You'd think we're trying to protect something in there that's really valuable. But our students go in there and they study and, and, and they got to leave because they can't stand the claustrophobic feeling of what our library is like. In our new building, this is the view of our library. There's got this atrium in the middle of the building. Now, I'm a little worried that maybe the students are just going to be daydreaming, but I really think it's going to give them an environment and an atmosphere where they're going to study for hours because of the wonderful climate that they're going to be having. I think that this is a miracle from God for DTS Houston. Maybe not on a level of standing in the gap, certainly not on a level of triumphal entry. But I try to train myself to see what God is providing when God's presence has made itself known. And I love to point it out to other people. Look at this view. Look at what God is doing for DTS Houston. See, this is something that only God could do. Well, you don't have to go to seminary to experience that. Guys, wherever you guys are with whatever work you're doing, God wants you to see him in action. When you open up the Bible and you read it for your morning devotions, God wants you to hear what he has to say to you. The words and the works of Almighty God so that we would see it and react and respond with amazement. So that those around us are saying, man, what did you see? What in the world is getting you so excited about life? Well, let me tell you about the Savior and what he's done for me. And that can be so infectious that the lives of human beings who are around you, their eternity can be changed forever because of your enthusiasm to the reaction of what God presents in your life. That's what the great lesson here, the triumphal entry, is all about. How will we respond when God makes himself known by what he does or what he says? The works and the words of Almighty God in our life, if they could stir us to enthusiasm and we could share that with the lives of others, they will be attracted to the light and their eternity can be shaped forever because of our testimony in them. Can you imagine every one of us impacting the lives of two or three people this year in 2015? What an amazing multiplication process that will be. Have a great time here at Table Talk, guys.
Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.